Welcome to Science Night, presented by the River Power Podcast Belt. Hey everybody, it is James, and we are back with another episode of the Science Night Podcast. Tonight, you're going to hear my interview with Dr. Patrick Glothier. Now, it's a little different. He is not a scientist. He's not actually related to science at all in his general profession. He is a classicist and a philologist. And it seems like oh, this is a pretty big leap to bridge the gap between this and the Science Night podcast. But here's the thing. A, it's my podcast and I can put whoever I want on it. And B, he studies the philosophy of science in the classical era. And I think once you listen to the way this interview goes, you'll see the link between what he does and our podcast is, is pretty solid. So I hope that you enjoy this episode the interview with Patrick Gauthier. Patrick, thank you so much for joining me today. I know this isn't the ideal setting for uh, talking to each other again after after a break, but we're here in our home offices making it work. Yep. <laughs> so... This will be the first time that we've had somebody on this podcast that is not necessarily a scientist, but I think when people hear, mildly. you know, <laughs> I think when people hear what you do and how you interact with the sciences, that you, they'll see that this is a great fit. And if they don't think this is a great fit, they should start their own science podcast. <laughs> I think that was the best advice you ever gave me was, well, you do control who's on this, so you can kind of do whatever you want. And I have made that my my yeah. mind going forward. There you go. So why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about what you do? Sure. So I am a classicist. I'm trained as a classical philologist, uh, which means that I you know, work on the uh, texts and languages uh, of ancient Greece and Rome, right? So ancient Greek and Latin literature and language. Uh, within that incredibly uh, broad category, most of my research tends to be focused on the social production of knowledge in the ancient world, especially knowledge about nature, natural phenomena. So I'm interested in the origins of theories about um, seismology and volcanology, about astronomy and astrology, um, about ancient medicine. And I'm interested in how uh, these sort of scientific discourses function um, in the classical world and interact with other forms of discourse. So um, how does an idea about uh, volcanoes uh, first appear? How does it um, sort of spread? Uh, what are the competing theories? Where do um, these ideas pop up? Uh, things like that. I'm also um, interested in the aesthetics of scientific thinking uh, and sort of the intersection between explaining nature and um, aesthetic values. Yeah, I think... I think the big takeaway here, I can't believe I'm talking in corporate speak already, but <laughs> but 
it is a way for uh, people in the scientific community to get context uh, in their profession, in their uh, discipline. It's really easy for us to forget that there is an entire lineage of things that have come before us. So if we just take that view of like, well, you know, I don't think it's worth thinking about anything before the scientific revolution or into the common era, or my favorite dating mechanism is in like archeology span where they call before the present. And the present is just some random time in 1950 when the atomic age started. Um, (laughs) But it's easy for scientists to kind of lose the thread and not realize that the scientific method and building upon evidence goes back way further than its codification in the Western view of things. Right. Yeah. Um, everything that we think of as sort of being part of the, the scientific process, right. Um, today has a history, right. Comes from somewhere. And, you know, it's, it's often easier to look at the ways that sort of knowledge production is socially contextualized sort of in a different time period, in a different place. Now, are there, are there specific people uh, who you study or specific eras, I should say? In terms of my training and sort of what most of my writing is, is about, uh, I work on mostly Latin texts. The book I'm working on right now is about authors who are all situated in the first century CE, sort of early, early Roman Empire. But you can't really do this kind, of, this kind of work without being familiar with and working with basically the whole span of Greco-Roman antiquity, right? Sure. Uh, so everything always sort of goes back to Homer in one way or another. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I write down people like Seneca, uh, who is a relatively well-known philosopher who uh, was active under the, the reign of Nero in the first century CE. But I've also written about um, Greek drama uh, and, and sort of stuff that's all, all over the place. The reason that, that I'm doing this podcast, I got to know you, is uh, I took an ancient medicine course that you were taking. It was really interesting. You know, I was expecting, oh, ancient medicine. We're going to talk about uh, William Harvey. That's, a, that's, that's far <laughs> enough back. Um, and it's like first class, we're talking about pre-Socratic uh, thought. And I... I fell into my own trap all along. Who knew (laughs) that there's an entire world of contacts that you're just not getting if you don't look at certain things. And I do believe the first reading assignment was Homer. (laughs) That's true. It was. Yes, we did the Iliad. We were reading something from the Iliad, right? Yeah. Yeah, See, I did do the reading. The Iliad, the Iliad starts, the first thing that happens in the Iliad is Apollo sends a plague um, to to punish the Greek army. Uh, Yeah. And I think... Speaking of plagues, it is like the time to talk about plagues. If we're not going to talk right. about plagues at any other time, now is the time to do it. So using your training and your research as kind of a framework, do you see any similarities to classical text and maybe not the scientific response to the current COVID-19 outbreak, but maybe the popular response to something like that? Yeah. I mean, so the like main place to go, if you're interested in, in plague in the ancient world uh, is Thucydides account uh, in the, his history of the Peloponnesian war uh, about the, the great plague uh, of Athens. This is um, uh, I'm, I'm probably going to mess up the date. Uh, I want to say 430 or 429 uh, BCE. 
And the text is only a couple of pages long, uh, but Thucydides describes, you know, in great sort of gory detail um, what the plague does to people. And he says that he himself uh, had caught the plague and actually survived it. But he you know, goes into all, all this detail about what happens to the physical, to your physical body, but then also, right, what happens um, to the, the community, right, at large. And what the plague does uh, from Thucydides' perspective is it kind of causes a breakdown of the entire social sort of fabric, right? Um, people stop going, uh, stop uh, worshiping the gods. They stop um, going to the temples because, you know, everything they do there is to no avail. People stop you know, burying the dead because there are too many of them, right? They don't have time. Uh, the relationships between each other kind of fall apart. They start mistrusting one another and you know, everything just kind of completely breaks down. So society fails. <laughs> I wouldn't say we're in exactly that place right now, <laughs> right? Um, a lot of what you hear well, I guess it depends on what kind of media you consume. A lot of what um, I hear, right, is that um, COVID-19, right, has uh, revealed in profound new ways, right, a lot of the mm -hmm. inequalities and uh, sort of structural um, inequalities in American society and exacerbated them, right, and, yeah. and made them worse. But you also start to see, uh, so, so that's sort of different from what, from what Thucydides says that the plague is doing. But you also are starting to see sort of a breakdown at a lot of levels sure. um, of, of society. Um, so it's an interesting comparison. And Thucydides um, is interested in thinking about what happens to human nature when human nature is like really stressed, right? And so the plague is like so it's a great stressor that reveals you know, what human nature is really like. I'm not sure that's quite, again, what we're getting. I think, right, what we're seeing here is um, what's being revealed is the problem, problematic nature, as it were, right, of like American society. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I think it it has to be said though, if we were in a walled city under siege as Athens was at that time, things might be breaking down at a at a quicker rate. Could be going faster, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um you know, but it is I I've been doing a lot of learning uh during this time and a lot of reflecting as I, hopefully everyone listening, all my good listeners, I know that you are, are actively engaging in your community, uh, maybe for the first time, maybe it's part of the thing that is just traditional and, and valuable to you. But, you know, it, it's really, uh, the cracks are there and we're really starting to shine a light on them. So yeah. hopefully, hopefully this doesn't become part of the cyclical nature of our existence, but maybe the pessimist in me is thinking like, well, you know, we did this dozens and dozens of other times throughout history. Um, who, who's to say this will be the time that makes it stick, but hold well, on, Th hold. when Thucydides finishes this narrative, he just sort of goes on, right? We never actually, we don't get the story about how um, Athenian society tries to like pull itself back together. Whereas we now yeah. right, are actually living. living. That, that would be the great text to have right now. It's like, okay, wait, hold on. We know Athens got better. Like where is, right. and, and uh, you know, there's a little bit of, of tyrannical um, kingship going on uh, directly <laughs> after that. So maybe we don't want to know exactly how they yeah. got everything back together. Well, and then you see other other examples in, in Thucydides where other stressors makes different societies collapse and fall apart. So there's mm -hmm. a danger um, that yeah. it's just going to keep on happening. But um, in all <laughs> in all of this, so so there is like the societal breakdown, uh, but there is also like kind of that I think maybe overly heroic version of the Doctor, 
Um, but there is like the attempt at a medical response throughout all of this. Is that correct? In, in Thucydides? Yeah. Or, or am I thinking of something else when they're talking about Hippocrates coming in and. Oh, right. Well, so in Thucydides, um, the, the medical art, uh, fails, right? It can't figure out what's going on. And this is sort of emblematic, right? Of the failure of, um, sort of science, science, as it were, sure. at large. Um, but there is a story that, that is later that Hippocrates, um, who is, you know, the, the historical Hippocrates is kind of a very shadowy figure that that's hard to say a lot, a lot about. Um, but there's a story that's generated later, later in time that he shows up at Athens and uh, sort of miraculously is able to cure the plague. He, um, he like lights a fire on the edge of town and burns some kind of like aromatic, you know, stuff and basically fumigates, right. The city, mm-hmm. um, and, and makes everything sort of go away. Right. So it's this, yeah, exactly. This, um, heroicization, right. Of, of the sure. doctor. Yeah. I think, I think uh, that's what we need right now. I, you know, there's probably a, a certain sect of, of uh, the world that would love to just think they could cure this, this outbreak with something that is aromatic and, and essentially Anthony oily. Fauci to, to light a big fire <laughs> in the Atlantic ocean and fumigate the country. Yeah. You know, he's just trying to get us to wear masks. Uh, <laughs> maybe we or, or we could that. do that. Yeah. <laughs> we could wash our hands, wear masks and stand six feet apart. Right. But there is, there is that interesting part of Thucydides where they talk about the failing of science. And I think part of the reason and part of the reason I started this is there is kind of a fundamental lock of uh, trust in science and scientists these days. Uh, not yeah. by everyone, but by, I would say, a growing portion of of uh, the population. And I always thought that part of it is that there is this personification of, like, the hero scientist that is never wrong. And then, like, when you get the failing... There is the idea that, well, I didn't fail. It just wasn't something that could be done. And that's just not how a scientist would approach something. There's always the expectation that I'm going to have a thousand ways to look at this thing um, before I find the way through. But that being said, sometimes certain groups of scientists can be a little bit closed-minded when they're on like that bleeding edge of discovery. And I think that it is important for those people who are so kind of tunnel visioned, uh, nobody that I've talked to, of course, but to be able to kind of take a, take a step back and look at like, listen, (laughs) we're not always going to like carte blanche, believe everything you say. So you kind of need to be able to explain your thought process and maybe also be able to pivot if, if this isn't working after a certain amount of time. Right. Well, there's an important distinction, right. Between the idea that um, scientific knowledge, right. Is something that's socially generated, right. Science um, doesn't just go around uncovering sort of hidden truths that exist, you know, out there sort of in the world. Uh, This is a narrative that we, Western society told ourselves for a very long time, right? It actually goes back to, to antiquity, the idea that there are these sort of fundamental immutable truths that mm. science is in the process of uncovering and exposing. But no, right, scientific knowledge is a human construct. And there are different ways, depending on how you feel about the philosophy of science, there are different ways to try to make sense of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think most people are going to accept um, that it is sort of 
human built, which leads to what you're saying, right? That there are going to be errors. You're going to sort of make mistakes. It's going to be a process of, of a real process, right? To, to figure things yeah. out. But acknowledging that, right, I think is a benefit. It doesn't have to mean that then we should mistrust science or expertise, sure. right? But it's just understanding that, yeah, it's a human thing. We're all humans, right? We're all um, embedded in different, different kinds of networks. Um, right. going to be going to be wrong a lot yeah. of the time. Science, science isn't a thing. It is a framework in which we can attempt to answer questions in a systematic way. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the mistrust of science, right, could be, could be remedied if um, education, you know, even just say high school education uh, involved a little bit of exposure to say the history of science or um, the philosophy of science or, or even um, the sociology of science, right? So yeah. teaching kids not just to memorize I don't know, this periodic table or formulas or something, but getting them to sort of understand sort of how science uh, has evolved and, and, and works, becoming more literate um, about that. I, I agree. You know, I think we should start introducing Galen in elementary <laughs> school. Maybe we will finally have an answer to to some of his greatest greatest achievements uh in I, his I career there's room for a, a board book um version of the greatest doctor the best doctor it's also a philosopher uh, hey sure. oh that's going to be a science that original check <laughs> check up with our social media feeds uh <laughs> a, a, a golden book treasury edition uh, uh will be coming i'm tired today. I'm tired of reading books about fire trucks and dump trucks to my toddler. I think we need <laughs> Galen for the the one and a half year old. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's something that uh, that we here at the River Power Podcast Mill can start to attack um, in full force. You talked a lot about um, you know what you do and your background, but um, how did you get to this point? You know, not often do I talk to a little kid that is like. I want to grow up to be a classical philologist. Um, I'm thinking of maybe like Tolkien and and C.S. Lewis and C. Lewis, right? <laughs> maybe somewhere back in Germany in the like, 19th century. Sure. Um, uh, I I totally became a classicist by accident. <laughs> um, uh, I you know I went to college and. Uh, my freshman year, I, I decided I wanted to double major in uh, physics uh, and English literature. Um, so I signed up for like uh, physics for majors and all of these like math classes and then these you know, English classes. And I very uh, quickly realized I did not, in fact, want to be a physicist. Um, that was <laughs> not my strong suit. Sure. Um, but uh, the English classes I was taking were very heavy in theory, uh, like critical theory. Uh, so I started reading a lot of um, you know, 20th century uh, sort of philosophy. And you know, the more I read people like uh, Derrida and Lyotard and Deleuze and Guattari, the more I realized like all these guys all know a lot about like hardcore philosophy, right? So I need to start going back and reading uh, people like Husserl and Heidegger. And so when I was doing that, um, I was also reading a lot of early 20th century sort of modernist literature, people like um, Joyce and Pound. And so all these people were talking about like ancient Greek, right? Um, and I decided uh, one summer, the summer after my sophomore year, all right, well, I've either got to start learning German um, so I can read you know, Heidegger in German, or I've got to start learning ancient Greek. And I went to the, the bookstore and I was just sort of looking at like the textbooks. I picked up the ancient Greek one. I just sort of fell in love with it. Um, I took it home and I started teaching myself ancient Greek over the summer. <laughs> uh, then when I got back to, to, to school, I realized that, you know, everyone who knows ancient Greek also knows Latin. 
so I guess I better start learning Latin. Um, and I, you know, it just kind of steamrolled from there. Sure. Uh, so it's a total sort of accidental right way that I, I stumbled in, into classics. But the people that I met, you know, I ended up doing this summer Latin program in, in New York City, the, the Latin Greek Institute, which everyone should do. If you've got 10 weeks to spare in the summer, you should go to Manhattan and, and learn Latin. Um, but I, I just met all these like amazing people who were super dedicated to, to the Latin language and to these um, crazy texts that I'd never heard before, like nothing about. Um, and it was just this really like, I don't know, intense eye-opening experience that I, I don't know, I kind of fell in love with. Mm-hmm. There was, and there was no turning back. Um, but I, I do remember, um, so I was, I was a senior in college telling my, my girlfriend at the time, there's no way that I'm going to grad school for this. That would just be ridiculous. Why would I get a PhD in classics? <laughs> um, but I soon realized uh, I got a job after college teaching, um, as one does. And I realized, hey, you know, I actually, I like teaching. I like having time to read and write. Um, and so it just sort of, it made sense. I, I think this is true in specifically like natural science and in, in my profession in anatomy. There's that thought that well you know we've kind of figured that out what's the point of being a a an anatomist and i think there's that misconception of a classicist as well it's like well you know you've had this long to figure it out like what what is left but right you know i always thought it was interesting when you're talking about no 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 we're finding like new manuscripts every year and devoting uh more and more time to this can you kind of yeah talk about how the the discipline is is continuing to evolve so i mean you're right that we are still you know finding new stuff and you know every once in a while we find something new that totally changes the way that you know we we thought about things but i think more more than that uh, even it's there are some new ways to think about right old text mm-hmm. there are new questions to ask um, as other parts of society or the acad- uh, academia change and develop right you get um, new ways of approaching things that seem familiar mm-hmm. uh, and that's right sort of what's always what's always evolving you know when you think about the history of science or the history of medicine um you know for a long time the history of, of ancient medicine meant the hippocratic corpus and galen right those are sort of the only two things that, that people um, talked about and people spent an inordinate, inordinate amount of time arguing about well which texts in the hippocratic corpus were actually written by the real hippocrates uh, and, and things like that but at some point, um, you know, in the second half of the, the 20th century, uh, people started realizing, well, there's ancient medicine sort of going on everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. You can sort of start reading these fragments of the pre-Socratics, or you can actually start all these interesting Latin authors who, who talk about medicine, who are really interesting, who you can learn things from, who you can um, sort of shed new light on familiar problems or just make you see things you never saw before. And so just because there are all these texts that have been there forever doesn't mean that we've always been looking at them and <laughs> thinking about them in interesting ways. Um, and it's true, ancient medicine in particular, there's so much in medical, there's so many medical texts from the ancient world. Um, it's an incredibly huge corpus that can, you know, if you are interested in ancient um, sexuality and gender, right, there's all kinds of stuff you can work with. If you're interested in the intersection between medicine and, and political uh, power, there are all kinds of texts, right, that you can get into. If you're interested in medicine and um, tragedy, right, uh, there, there's lots of stuff there. So you can, you can kind of go anywhere. And that's actually one of the reasons that I fell in love with classics uh, as a discipline is that it's also so broad and there's so many 
right? Like interesting things mm-hmm. that, that you can do. It seems to me that during this era, there is that unbreakable bond between philosophy, science, and religion. And that is all kind of informing everything that that these people are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about how your average student of science should keep that in their mind when they're reading these texts, uh, you know, to give them some context rather than just looking at it for the scientific theory behind it. Right. So reading scientific texts as cultural documents, Mm -hmm. right? Yes, exactly. Um, Much better way of saying it. (laughs) <laughs> and I think that's sort of what I tried to do in, in the class that, that you took with me, um, where right, it's the goal isn't just to sort of memorize who came up with what theory first, right? Or who came up with the theory that most closely tracks our understanding of sort of how the human body works or, or something like that. Um, rather, uh, the goal is to see, you know, how do these texts, how do these ideas interact with other parts right, of society? You know, so one really fascinating thing, if you're, especially if you think about religion, is the, the cult of Asclepius, right? Um, so here's this god um, who's deeply connected with healing. Uh, people go to his temple, right? You, um, you can sleep in the temple and the god will like visit you in a dream and um, sometimes cure, cure what's wrong with you. It sounds to us, right, like sort of totally fanciful, like totally this crazy made up thing. But the biggest, you know, medical thinkers and scientific thinkers of the ancient world, people like Galen, right? We're, we're all in for this. They totally were, were adherents of, even dedicated themselves in some, some instances um, to this guy, this cult of Asclepius. So one thing that I think that that can show you, right, is just how deeply interconnected all of these things are. There's a tendency maybe, I mean, I don't, again, I'm not a scientist, so I don't want to speak for, for scientists, um, but you get the impression sometimes that there's a... Um, a real attempt to draw a dividing line between sort of science and religion. It's often sort of presented that way. Um, whether or not that's true in the modern era is, is up for debate, but it's certainly not true in the ancient world, right? There's, there's no right. um, you know, deep conflict uh, between science and religion in the way that we, we tend to think of it from an enlightenment perspective. And seeing that right in the ancient world, I think can then open your eyes to looking for those kinds of connections, say, say today. It's important to keep in mind and I'm reading a book about, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do a talk this week on cryptid. So it's not just like an out there. I'm reading a lot on Bigfoot, <laughs> <laughs> but there is this talk about like during the ancient world, there was still like the unknown. Um, there was still like the fog around the map. And a lot of the things that they kind of fell back on to explain that was philosophy, religion, and also, you know, that scientific tradition Um, one of the books I'm reading talks about the demystification of science. So there's that break with religion and science. And that's when scientists become a lot less fun and a lot more. I'm going to sit in my office and categorize the phylogeny of the dandelion. (laughs) It's great. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, sure. (laughs) So, (laughs) So it, it, it's really it's really interesting to look at a different perspective where all of these things are still together. So their their daily like they would never they would never assume that religion and science is something that be should be separated. Well, I think different people in the ancient world would say that there are different ways to approach a problem, right? 
um, the things that you expect to happen or to get when you go to the cult of Asclepius, right, for, for a cure are different from what you would expect or what you would get from going to a doctor. Yeah. Um, and in some circumstances, you might go to the doctor. In some circumstances, you might want to go see Asclepius. And it's, yeah, uh, they do different things, right? They perform different tasks. You get different outcomes from them. And of course, in our modern, super scientific, not superstitious at all, medical tradition, there is no vestiges of the cult of Asclepius present in anything ever. Definitely not on like the Kellogg uh, um, auditorium at the medical school, a giant rod of Asclepius that can be for all to see. You know, it really drives me crazy when medical people still use the caduceus. That's that's not what I really want to be on my first responder. <laughs> if, you, if you think about it being, you know, what that, that is what Hermes would usher those to the underworld with, correct? Yes. Uh, there's, uh, I'm blanking. I'm going to blank on these specifics. There's like two different versions of it, right? One that has one snake and one that has two. Yeah. And I'm forgetting now which one is, is connected with Hermes. Um, so it's the one with two and the wings. Um, yeah. And that's what you see in like the Army Medical Corps. Uh, yeah. and maybe, you know, maybe it is actually fitting for the Army Medical Corps to have something that is more uh, <laughs> in line with with moving people on. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, that that always drove me crazy. But I was always that kind of nerd that would be bothered by something like that. So <laughs> maybe that says more about me than the actual. <laughs> I, I, I guess it also deserves saying in this context that. You could you could make an argument, and some people have an argument that science isn't really a thing in the ancient world, right? We've sort of been having this conversation, like taking it for granted that, that mm. science is, is a thing. Uh, but there are, are people who would say that using that word in an ancient context is actually a really gross anachronism. I sort of I use the term anyway uh, because, sort of, to be clear, that what we mean by science today, right, is not at all the same thing that we mean in an ancient context, right? There are all sorts of implications behind the term science we don't want to import into the ancient world but you can make an argument that a lot of um sort of scientific thinking in antiquity is really like philosophy sure right and when you read someone like galen it, it's hard to tell sometimes if you want to call a specific idea or passage right if you want to call it philosophy or medicine yeah no and now i'm remembering back like you know the hallmark of west the, the modern western scientific tradition is like systematic and evidence-based and there were multiple fields of specifically medicine that they're like well what do you need evidence for hold on <laughs> what, are, what are we worrying about being systematic uh you know it, it does but this because it does this but i mean galen right is like the most systematic evidence-based yeah, person no, you no, could no. ever want but um, I would say, like, the people who weren't systematic were not necessarily, like, fringe at that time. Yeah. They were they were part of the mainstream medical tradition in, in and, their area. And, you know, there's a distinction you can draw between maybe learned medicine mm -hmm. uh, and sort of everyday medicine, right? And so much of the evidence that we have is for learned medicine, right? For the people like Galen, who were the rock stars um, of the ancient world. And it can be really hard to know what just your average doctor, right, on the street was mm -hmm. thinking and to, you know, believed how he thought of what he was doing. Yeah. And or she. There, there is evidence for, for female doctors in the ancient world. 
yeah there is there's the there's an we could do an entire podcast on on uh, um like maternal medicine in the ancient world and i'm sure if i the five people that would listen to it would think it was super interesting <laughs> um but it, it is interesting how you think of even even like the enlightened romans like well that was a long time ago they can't be super super in front of certain things but in some ways like there were a lot of taboos that they didn't have and there were a lot of taboos that they do have that 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 aren't current um but it's really interesting to read specifically about um women's medicine in the ancient world it's you'll go in with preconceptions and some of them will be confirmed but a lot of them will be kind of shattered it's it's really cool it's a, yeah it's a whole really rich subfield so i think another thing that we need to talk about we you know we we hinted at masks and how they are a great thing that we should all be wearing and this is a hard pivot but i wanted to make sure we covered <laughs> Um, we covered ancient mask the, wearing, <laughs> ancient mask wearing, specifically the the theory of miasma, because that is something that is really present in the ancient um, Hippocratic tradition. But there is that through line all the way to the 1900s. Um, mm-hmm. So, could you talk about maybe just generally? miasma theory and how it kind of still plays a part in in our life so and you can do like a quick glossing over it i maybe yeah. i'll cover that more in depth <laughs> on like a follow-up episode all right um, so so the, the word miasma it's a greek word that means pollution right uh and originally it means sort of pollution in a, in a ritualized context right so um when you've done something you shouldn't do when you've been somewhere where you shouldn't be, right? You're, you're polluted. Um, and that needs to be, you need to be purified. Right. Um, and depending on, you know, if you killed a relative or something, you certain kinds of things you can do to, to get polluted. But this idea of, um, of religious pollution, uh, then gets turned into a sort of quasi medical idea. Right. Uh, so miasma refers to corrupted air, right? Polluted air, air that has something like something bad has happened to it. Um, and it's like out of whack. And that, right, is what makes people sick. Uh, mm-hmm. Or it, it's a source of disease, I guess we would say. Um, and, you know, polluted air, right, can just sort of come from anywhere. And, right, you. You don't necessarily sort of know that it's there, um, but it right. This is this, this idea that that's what's causing your your problems. This is different, or it's usually sort of held to be different uh, from the idea of, of a contagion, right? So a, a contagion, um, right, would be what we think of right as basically germ theory, uh, right. something right that is in you, right, that you then can pass on to someone else and make them sick. So miasma is not that, right? Um, if you, if you become sick from from miasma from pollution you don't then pass it on to somebody else. It's just something that's like out there floating around. So it's the air itself that is like affecting, affecting the body. Exactly. Right. The, the air itself is, is polluted, is corrupted, is compromised. Um, and then that right. sort of gets inside of you and does bad things. to you. Yeah. I think that's a great teaser for the follow-up episode to this episode where I am definitely going to talk about miasma theory. And I'm, I don't think you can talk about miasma without talking about four humors and, and all that fun stuff. So, yeah. So, uh, um, next next time we'll talk about the deadliest stink and me as the theory. 
<laughs> but yeah, so miasma theory, right, it pops up already in the Hippocratic corpus um, and where it's sort of a, I guess, a rationalization of a religious idea. And then as you were saying, right, it persists, basically. Mm-hmm. People are still proponents of it into like the 19th century. Yeah. And it's it's really interesting. Like, like I said, it's easy for us to just like throw all of this out and be like, oh, that's that stuff. We don't we don't really worry about that. But um, a lot of these like foundational theories really have some legs up until the Enlightenment and even a little bit for, further. And I'm sure I don't know a ton about folk medicine, but I bet if you looked at ancient folk medicine that there are at least a few things that we are still doing as as part of like the common folk tradition you know my my grandmother used apple cider vinegar for absolutely everything Uh, (laughs) and it made the windows look nice but i don't think it cured my cold as often as she thought it did right uh yeah no i think you're you're definitely um but you know even this idea of, of miasma is one where in different contexts it also has different sort of connotations and it's not some sort of irrational fanciful thing mm-hmm. um you know it, it's right a well thought out sort of idea it's explained using sort of scientific or philosophical principles right it's it's this really you know well thought out theory um that can also coexist right with other theories of causation of disease right you can have a god who pollutes the air right so the, the god can, can make it happen and that can you know, indicate a, a moral failing on, on your part um so again you see sort of the interconnectedness right of um uh, different modes of explanation, right? different forms of discourse. And so the area that you're uh, primarily studying, um, you would theoretically, and I mean, ancient manuscripts are still hard to come by, but you would theoretically have access to these manuscripts. In your view, how important is it to have access to as close to the original as possible um, you know, you talked about learning ancient Greek and Latin to be able to read these texts. Is is that something that is required just at like the academic level, or is it a better idea to to read in the original when when you can get it? I think everyone should learn ancient Greek. It'll blow your mind. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's the craziest uh, roller coaster ride um, out there. Um, I, I think. Uh, no, so at, at any level, right, you can get a lot out of these texts reading them mm-hmm. in translation. I certainly don't want to suggest that, that you have to spend the time to go learn ancient Greek um, to have a worthwhile encounter with, with Galen or the Hippocratic Corpus. Uh, that having been said, uh, you do get, you, you do learn different kinds of things and you see different kinds of things when you're doing it, right, in Greek. So that whole little spiel I just made about miasma, meaning pollution, and sort of what pollution is in the ancient context you need someone who knows ancient Greek to be able to make that statement. So that's just like a small example, but yeah, you, you absolutely see different kinds of things. Um, and so if you, if you enjoy it, like if you read the stuff in English and and you like it, spend a little time, learn, learn some ancient Greek. Right. And you don't have to learn, you don't have to go to grad school for it, but you can learn learn a little and then like, you know, have a really like awesome experience. Classes are really good at making, uh, you know, aids to help you read uh, sort of texts, um, mm-hmm. and, and people have done that for, for medical texts too. So help help students read things in, in the ancient languages. It really is amazing how you know when you would bring in your knowledge of original uh, manuscript, how that can change some of the translations that we're reading. Like 
you still get the point from the translation, but it adds a lot more right. richness to the understanding. So, like, whenever I'm teaching courses that are where all the readings are in translation, right? Everything's in English. I always, I always try, right, to bring in some basic like terms. So, you know, we spent a lot of time in that medicine class talking about nature, right? Phusis uh, in Greek, and you, right, we looked at different passages where the translators had translated things different ways. But it turned out if you go to go to the Greek, right, the underlying word is the same, and you can see, right, how that word connects all these different sort of texts and how people are having an argument about what that word really means um, and you can you can dig really deep um, just right with, with one word and you don't necessarily get that again if you're if you're doing things in, in translation yeah. uh, you said another interesting thing though this idea of trying to get back to what the authors originally said right so what did the text you know what was the original meaning of the text and that's something that's super complicated right because we have all these manuscripts um, and none of them are identical because mm -hmm. uh, for thousands of years, people copied out everything by hand and try to copy a hundred page <laughs> treatise by, by Galen by hand. You're going to make some mistakes. <laughs> um, sure. And so right, people also will spend a lot of time arguing like, well, what did the actual original person write? And that can be hard all on its own. Yeah. And if you go back further, a lot of the written documents were not actually written by the person like orating. It would be a scribe that was like, busily scratching into a clay tablet to uh, uh, try and get like the gist, um, you know, specifically sure, yeah, right? about like Homer. Right. The question of right, when the Homeric poems got written down is again, a really sort of thorny one, right? But they're originally sort of orally composed, right? By, by people who would, who were skilled um, rhapsodes, right? Is, is the term in Greek. Um, and yeah, that's, that's a difficult question, but even sort of more to the relevance of ancient science and philosophy, the whole corpus of Aristotle, Aristotle did not write those treatises. Those are basically like lecture notes um, that, that other people made of, of his lectures. <laughs> oh, man. I pity the futureling that 5,000 years is trying to read my lecture notes this, <laughs> right. this primary text. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of like, why, why did he start doodling there? <laughs> what does it mean? So in your work, you know, I... I think it's really important that people understand that nothing kind of happens in a vacuum and that silos are bad for everything other than like grain. How important is it for somebody in the classics to have like working relationships with maybe other academic departments, but just other um, traditions and professions in general? I mean, it, it's vitally important, right? And this is again, something that is relatively new uh, in through the history of, of, of classics, this idea that we really can and should right, reach out to other disciplines, other fields, um, because it allows you to ask different kinds of questions, to see evidence in new ways, right? And to really you know, keep things keep things alive and vital. Classics is kind of interdisciplinary by nature, right? In that you need people who work with languages, you need people who can dig stuff up, you know, you need people who can talk about sort of architecture and art, but it's also helpful if you can talk to people who know about anatomy, who know about right, medicine, who know about, um, yeah, all different kinds of, of things. Yeah, I was teaching a course during the spring, the remote learning spring term um, on ancient uh, astronomical texts uh, in Latin. So we were reading Latin texts about the stars and the planets. And I had reached out to someone in, in the physics and astronomy department that we were gonna do some do some stuff with um, physics and astronomy. 
the pandemic made that kind of yeah. not work out. Um, but um, the, the next time for sure. Um, and, you know, getting the, your, your anatomy lab involved in the medicine class, right. was really, um, was really sort of amazing uh, and, and really just helped, helped enrich the experience. Yeah. No, I, I am a huge proponent for interdisciplinary um, work. I, I think getting a bunch of different eyes on the problem is the way to find maybe not the right solution, but a solution that covers a lot of bases rather than this is the answer as far as what an anatomist knows. But it's like, hold on a second. This is, this is how we run into problems like 10 years down the road where it's like, Oh no, this guy had some way crazy ideas about eugenics. Maybe we should not take this into the, the gospel of, of this discipline. Um, and I think that's something that we're dealing with in a lot of sciences right now, especially when you look at the history of things that happened like after world war two and all that not so fun stuff. Um, again, lights are shining on the cracks of, <laughs> of society, but back, back to the topic at hand, you know, you talked about kind of going through spring term and as we were chatting, uh, before this, you know, it was kind of like, Oh, you, you got a couple weeks. You can, you can make it happen. And now we're kind of doing everything remotely, which I'm sure really increases like the stress level and your work for everyone. I don't want to say monotonous because you love what you do and you've said you love what you do. So I don't want to make it like, Oh man, that's a drag, but, (laughs) but But. (laughs) you know, I think everyone gets to a point in their career, whether they are um, working in a restaurant or performing neurosurgery or a classic philologist at Dartmouth college where everything starts to feel a little bit burnt out. So one of the things I've been asking all my guests is what are some ways that you keep your work fresh and stay interested in what you're doing? Cause I think that's something that everyone can take into their life and, and uh, use regardless of what their profession is. I mean, one thing that I find that, that I do is I get interested in sort of a problem or a tech. Like I, I stumble across something just because I know I'm reading just, just for fun. And I stumble across something that is not necessarily that relevant to what I've, I've been doing, but it's something that's really interesting. And that I then sort of can get kind of obsessed with, end up finding ways that is actually relevant to, to what what uh, I'm interested in, in in other areas. So I like just kind of accidentally stumbling upon new stuff and then like diving into it. Uh, I'm working I'm working on a paper right now about a second century second century CE Christian text called the, the Proto Gospel of James. I'm not an expert in ancient Christianity or ancient religion or anything. Um, but I was you know, just reading this thing and it, it was this passage in the text where um, time stands still. And I just got really fascinated in the idea of like, what does it mean for time to stand still? Like, how does that work? And like, like what's the thought process behind this? And like, what's the significance of it in, the, in this text? And it turned out I started digging into it and it was actually kind of related to some philosophical and scientific things um, that uh, I actually know about. So it's kind of like a nice diversion for me. Right. Um, yeah. And I find that in my field, I can do that a lot. I can kind of find things accidentally that turn out to be super interesting and are kind of like diversions, but really ultimately they're like enri- enriching. Uh, this also happens, I think, with teaching. Um, one of the reasons I love to teach things in translation 
is that I read in a totally different way. Um, and you know, thinking about texts in order to teach them and sort of hearing what students have to say about them can be really eye-opening and lead to other kinds of work um, and other, other types of writing that I wouldn't never have you know, been doing um, had I not been in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that those are sort of two, two key things, like just being willing to go out and like do something kind of crazy. Uh, but then also like, you know, teaching sort of a little bit beyond your limits, maybe in, in using the classroom to, to, to find new stuff. Sure. Um, I like the idea of your like stress coping mechanism is to be like, make myself super uncomfortable for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I, right. you know, I, I think there's more to it than that throwaway uh, throwaway line I just said, you know? Um, (laughs) I mean, so the ancient medicine thing is a good example, right? So I work on ancient sort of scientific literature and culture um, in in general. Uh, Like ancient medicine is not my specialty, right? Mm -hmm. So actually teaching this class was a ton of work for me, but I really enjoyed it. And like, I sort of discovered like all these new things, like I'd never really thought about before. And like got these ideas for different kinds of like papers and research projects. And so it was really awesome. Right. I mean, it was, it was a field that I knew about, but had never like really thrown myself into it. Right. In in such a way. So I like it when teaching, right. Can kind of do that can kind of make you see new stuff and um, figure out new avenues of, of exploration. Yeah, no. And I see the, experimental the experimental classes are always my favorite to take because you know you never really know what's going to happen until until you get through it but i love the instructors that are willing to like take a risk especially you know we didn't talk about it but you're not like tenured at this point so taking a risk is a little bit risky riskier for you than someone who is in like Five years after they've gotten tenure, full professorship, uh, um, it's just like a different thing. But I think being in a department that allows you to take those risks is is super important. And I think that the quality of student that comes out of an institution that allows for those kind that kind of an experimentation is going to be a lot more well rounded. And that's like you know talking about like de-siloing and interdisciplinary things. Yeah. It starts with the academy. If the academy is not willing to let that happen, then how are the students going to go forth and take that into their life? Yeah. I mean, it was great to see in that class people who are you know, pre-med students sitting next to people who are majoring in ancient history um, and you know, everyone just bringing, bringing their own uh, expertise to the table. And again, like right, breaking down those, those silos, as it were. Yeah. Well, I have taken up so much of your time uh, just to pull the curtain back, this is like uh, um, a little bit chaotic with technology today, so I do apologize for that. But through the power of editing, it's going to be such a perfect podcast. I did want that is just life now. <laughs> yeah, I did want to give you an opportunity if you had any misconceptions that you wanted to clear up about your profession. I, I think you summed it up uh, well when you when you said, "Yeah, I was you know excited about this ancient medicine course. I thought we were gonna you know read about William Hardy." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think when I tell people I'm a classicist with people who are not in, in academia, or, you know, I, I often get like, "Oh, so like you, you do Shakespeare?" It's like, well, not exactly. <laughs> um, but if if you know that's that's the biggest misconception I have to clear up, and I think I'm doing doing okay. My dad still thinks that I'm like going to be Indiana Jones at some point. 
<laughs> I don't know how to disabuse him of that notion. Thank you so much to Patrick for sitting down and talking with me about Galen and Homer and Hippocrates and all of that cool stuff from ancient medicine and science. In the follow-up episode, I'm going to... You know, I actually... I think I'm going to talk about a lot of stuff. We're going to focus on ancient medicine, but I think we're going to really hit on miasma theory and the four humors theory, but I think we're going to really have to talk about Galen as well. So the follow-up episode is going to be officially on ancient medicine, but unofficially it's going to take a little bit of a chunk from a lot of things. And I'm really excited to put this together because it's, it's really cool how we kind of built upon our knowledge of the human body and the human condition and disease and came up with some interesting and not actually as far out there as you would expect remedies for some things. So that is going to be in two weeks. Check back for our ancient medicine episode. And I also want to thank the River Power Podcast Mail. As always, you can listen to Too Many Hats. You can listen to Stone Soup. You can listen to Pulp from Beyond the Bale. But I believe their second season has just wrapped up. So, But you can listen to the back catalog. It's always going to be a good time. There is going to be some news happening from the River Power Podcast Mail in the next few weeks or maybe the next month or so. I'm very excited, so stay tuned with that. I've been told that I don't plug myself enough at the end of these episodes, so you can follow me at James underscore Reed 3. You can follow the Science Night Twitter at Science Night 1. And as always, you can follow us on our website at SciNight.com for show notes, links, and all kinds of other cool stuff. I will be back in two weeks with an episode on ancient medicine. Until then, have a great night.